You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about effective communication with behavioral health patients. Joining me is Dr. Billy Schwartz, a psychologist in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks for having me. So as a little intro, approximately 15% of school-age children and adolescents in the U.S. are thought to have an emotional or behavioral disorder, and nearly two-thirds receive no formal mental health care. Pediatricians are increasingly being called upon to screen for and treat mental health problems. However, engaging patients who are ambivalent, anxious, or depressed can be a communication challenge. The American Academy of Pediatrics suggests a common factors approach, which emphasizes offering hope, empathy, loyalty, and partnership to promote engagement. So I'm going to ask you a number of the most common communication challenges we see in primary care and have you help us find a common factors approach to build into our practice. So first, we know that evidence suggests patients often do not tell clinicians about depression. So how can we help elicit concerns from our patients? Yeah, so despite significant efforts to destigmatize mental health concerns, we know that children and teens are likely to hold back on talking about their feelings. And part of that can stem from the typical power dynamic of a doctor-patient relationship, where providers ask direct questions, sometimes while typing away, and then impart instruction or wisdom about how the participant can act on that information. But mental health and eliciting change is different. Many don't have the language to talk about mental health issues and might feel ashamed or not know how to talk about things, where to get started. As a psychologist, I like to draw on principles of motivational interviewing, or MI for short, to help elicit change talk, especially when a kid or a family seems stuck or unwilling to disclose information. A key thing with MI is to remember that while you are the expert on medicine, they are the experts on their behavior, their lived experiences, and their motivation for change. Therefore, to elicit concerns, it's important first to check your terminology and remember that depression can present in a few ways. And then you can use some certain MI techniques to follow up. And I'll talk about some of those in just a minute. For terminology, the word depression carries significant weight that may not directly fit exactly how a kid feels. It's important to become fluid in knowing the symptoms of depression so that you can speak casually or colloquially about it without maybe using the medical terminology. Remember that classic depression does exist, but its presentation in primary care can vary vastly. You can be the privileged one to catch it in the very beginning, or it could be a situational response to a triggered event like a breakup or a friend issue, or let's say a year-long quarantine. It could be a long-standing problem, and it could also be comorbid with other mental health concerns like anxiety, substance use, psychological stressors, academic problems, or other health issues like managing chronic medical illness. 
When asking about depression, I like to talk casually. I'm armed, so to speak, with the medical language, but also ready to put it into real-world context. When I have students or trainees that shadow me in clinic, sometimes they'll say, how do you talk about these serious things so casually? Isn't that really hard? To which I respond with, yes, of course, but asking with a flat affect, a quick tone, or reacting with emotion isn't going to help the situation. For example, there's a big difference between moving right from obtaining a medical history to jumping into, in the past two weeks, have you felt down, depressed, or irritable? Which is a question based off the PHQ-9, a screener for depression. And something like this. I'm going to ask you about a sensitive question now. Do you feel like you've been feeling kind of sad lately? Maybe a little down or a little hopeless? And if they answer that and you say, that must be really hard. Thank you for sharing that information with me. How long has this been going on? And now that you've learned a little bit about what the patient is facing, then you can use MI techniques to get more information. There's a technique called elicit provide elicit method. The idea is that first you try to find out what the patient knows and then provide some additional information and ask for their reaction to that. Something along the lines of, thank you for sharing that you've been feeling sad lately with me, not really having a lot of energy to do the things that you enjoy and that your sleep's been kind of off. This sounds a little bit like depression to me. Have you ever heard that word? What does that mean to you? Which then you can continue to use that technique to understand how long this has been going on and what they might have already done to address the problem. For example, to continue that, have you found a way to manage those feelings? If they say they have, say great, we call some of those things coping strategies. But it sounds like some of them have been helpful, but not all of them. Can I offer or teach you some techniques to maybe address these problems. The point here is to try and abstain from a lecture and really help to build rapport. Thank you so much for explaining the elicit provide elicit method. I'm definitely going to build that into my practice and for acknowledging the stigma that still exists around mental and behavioral health. We also know that timing is very important and sometimes patients may identify a concern or even ask for advice but then express that they aren't ready to make a change. So how can we assess a patient's readiness to make a change and their confidence in doing it? Timing is so important. And I know that sometimes these mental health topics come up right at the end of the visit as you're about to exit the room. I like to take the perspective of feeling like it's an honor and a privilege when someone talks to me about their mental health for the first time. Maybe they've been having these feelings for a while. Maybe it's the whole purpose of the visit, or maybe they just decided to share after some questions you ask them, and you're the lucky recipient of this information. Using MI techniques is another great way to assess for readiness, and I promise that I'm not an MI coach, although I love the technique, but I do find it really helpful for practice. Once you've gotten the basic understanding of what and how, the next steps are thinking about change. I like to ask basic questions such as, Sounds like this has been going on for a bit and really isn't making you feel great. There are options to help, such as talking to someone to learn more, strategies to cope with your feelings. Would you be interested in learning more? Realize that in that sentence, I did not use the word therapy or counselor or medication. Mm -hmm. I just suggested the idea of talking to someone could be helpful. And if they say no, you could say, that's okay. I want you to know that I have resources that can help. And as soon as you feel like you're ready, you just let me know. And if they say something like, 
I'm scared or I don't like talking to strangers, you can reflect on the conversation that you just had with them. Well, you just opened to me and you were so brave and you did a really great job talking about some serious stuff. I think that you'd be really great if you were open to it. I also heard hope in what you were saying, and that goes back to that common factors approach that we were talking about. So you're really opening that door, as you mentioned. Sometimes, though, we suggest a treatment course, and it can be overtly rejected. So how can we approach resistance? So again, I'm going to draw on some more MI principles here. You can tell that I like these techniques and I use them often. (laughs) And MI has a response for this. It's called rolling with resistance. Resistance is common. It happens when we expect or push for change, but the patient or family is not ready for it. It's almost like a built-in defense mechanism, and there could be good reasons for it to exist. It can be really hard to talk to strangers and share some private family business. Plus, our fields have access issues, and families may have had negative experiences in the past due to things like racism or discrimination, and so resistance can be really real. You cannot make people change. You can only help them feel less threatened by the process of change. And so some of the MI tenants to help with resistance are making sure that you're expressing empathy. So to try and empathize with the concern and be as non-judgmental as possible, this can help a family or a patient feel heard and understood. Then you wanna work towards developing discrepancy and help them see that they've been trying to do some stuff on their own but it hasn't totally helped them feel 100% better. And so by helping them define some future goals of feeling better, they can then see the discrepancy from where they are today and where they wanna go. The next step is to help support self-efficacy. So you wanna help kids, teens feel like they have the power to make change happen and you believe that they can do that. And then to do that, you're using what we call as change talks. So moving them from thinking about where they're stuck in now towards the direction of change. So instead of feeling hopeless and that nothing will work out for me, you can start the talk about taking active steps to feel good again and get back to doing the things that you enjoy. Really try to think about asking, not telling, to listen more and talk less. And you'll be surprised sometimes at how much more information you can get. And I just want to put in a plug, if you're interested in some of these MI techniques, there's a book out there called Motivational Interviewing in Healthcare by Stephen Rolnick and colleagues. It's definitely worth checking out if what I've been talking about sounds of interest to you. Great. Thank you for the resource. And I love the the empathy piece and, and the partnering that you're mentioning. Now, sometimes when we're talking to patients, particularly depressed patients, it seems like they don't want to talk to us because they may have some paucity of speech and poor eye contact. So how do we build a conversation to elicit the history that we need for our assessment when it seems like a patient is not interested in talking? This one could be really hard when your agenda does not match the reality of the situation. I would recommend simply taking a pause. Make sure to look up from the computer. Stop typing if you recognize that there's something there that's hard to talk about, and maybe get it just a little bit closer, of course, following safety standards. Mm -hmm. It's okay to say, I have some important questions that I have to ask you, but I can see that you're not feeling comfortable just yet. So let me ask you a few more things, and then I'm going to come back to this. This lets them know that you have to ask these questions, 
but let's try and break the ice first so that we can feel more comfortable. And if time allows, then you can ask some neutral, non-threatening questions such as, what are your hobbies? What's your favorite food? What's the most recently watched show on your Netflix queue? And then go back and try again. And then lastly, try and get the teen or the child alone if you can. You might get access to some information when a parent is out of the room. That's great. I like that idea of putting it in the parking lot temporarily, building up some loyalty and rapport, and then kind of revisiting those hard topics. Exactly. So you mentioned parents. So some patients may feel like they were coerced into coming either by their parents or sometimes social services, and therefore they lack a sense of control in the visit. So how can we partner with these patients and tactfully distance ourselves from the coercive referral? I always think that a great place to start is to acknowledge that the pathway to get where they are may not have been by choice, but they are here, and so perhaps we can make the most of our time together. I typically have a phrase that says, it's my job to help with emotion and behaviors, plus making sure that all kids are safe. And it sounds like there's been some things going on for you that could be important to talk about. For medical providers, I could see this adapted to find a way to say something like, I'm here for you, and there are some things I have to check to make sure that you are healthy. And part of being healthy is knowing about your mood, your behaviors, and your overall mental health. So let's talk about some of those things now. And at the end of the day, you cannot force communication, but you can make it very clear that you're a person that wants to help and listen, and that could really go a long way. That's great. That goes back to that partnership that we are on the team with our patients, not against them. So that's great. I think another challenge that I see is that patients with a low mood may have a sense of hopelessness that makes it difficult to see a way out of their problem. And focusing on future goals can be more productive than focusing on how the problems came about in the first place. But how do we offer hope to a patient who feels hopeless? Hopelessness can absolutely impact communication efforts. Research suggests that there is a way to help patients recognize three important things in order to have more hope. One is to identify some goals and then to develop some pathways to achieve those goals, which can overall help with agency or efficacy overall. And so I agree that it's important to shift towards future goals and just goal setting in general as a way to motivate. The important thing with goal setting, though, is to think small as to help set some very small concrete steps that can help make things more achievable. For example, if a depressed teen is telling you that they're up all night and sleeping during the day and they recognize that this is a problem, but they don't feel like they can do anything about it, you wouldn't want to set a goal of going to bed at 10 o'clock tonight. Mm -hmm. That's a drastic change that likely will end in failure which will then sort of be counterproductive. So you need to meet the kid where they're at, setting some small goals, which will increase a sense of self-efficacy, leading to more hope. You can apply the same principle to something like school performance, where let's say you have a child who has a goal of passing the fifth grade, but that's a really big long-term goal. So you need to set some smaller short-term goals, such as focusing on your participation, making sure that you're attending your classes, really working on your effort, doing and turning in your homework, etc. And then even with those goals, you can break them down into smaller and smaller ones. So the idea is to start small and build a pathway to have them achieve that goal. And then you're building towards agency. So for depression, for example, 
An active treatment component that we therapists use to build agency and hopefulness is something called behavioral activation, or having the child identify pleasurable activities and come up with a plan to do one of them every day to increase joy. So you start small and see if they can come up with a pleasurable activity on their own, such as taking a dog for a walk or doing a TikTok dance. And I can't stress enough, you want to make sure that some of these ideas, if not all of them, are coming from the patient themselves. And the key is to asking, what are some of the things that you enjoy or you used to enjoy and that you can do for fun? And when they've come up with their own ideas with a little help from you, and then a pathway to do those, like setting aside a timer to make sure you go outside to walk the dog or something along those lines, and they feel more confident, then they can make that change, which helps address hopelessness over time. I love that behavioral activation. I'm going to keep that in mind and do that for myself. So we also, we've been talking a lot about the patient, but parents are a big piece of communicating as well. So occasionally a parent and a child argue during the visit, and this can really derail the conversation. And sometimes things are going well, and this can shift things in a direction that we don't want it to go in. So how can clinicians shift the conversation back so that everyone feels heard and that the emotion is taken out of the treatment plan? I like to intervene almost immediately when I see this and say, wow, it seems like there are a lot of strong emotions going on right now. And I don't think that expressing them in this way is going to help us figure out a plan. You can then ask if each person can calmly express what they're feeling while everyone else remains silent. And if that doesn't go well or that doesn't seem to be working, the next step would be for you as the provider to lay out the treatment and then ask for comprehension and a plan for action, focusing on the future goals rather than on the emotion in the room. We call this emotional validation. So first, you recognize that the emotion exists and then calmly find a way to move on. Something like, I see this topic has brought up some very strong feelings. But here's the deal. We need to figure out a plan on how to get your kid to feel better. It's okay to be direct while also being empathetic and understanding and also goal-directive. It's a really good point that we as providers can take control in this situation because I think sometimes when we hear arguing, we tend to shut down and become an observer, but to remember that we need to step back in and play an active role to keep the conversation productive. Now that we have a lot of communication skills down, let's talk about some of the nonverbal communication tactics that we can use. So how can we show interest and encourage communication nonverbally? I love this question. First and foremost, we providers miss a lot of nonverbal information when we look at a computer screen and chart live charting. We have to do it, but sometimes we get so focused on that that we forget about the human nonverbal connection in the room. So I like to strive for a balance of getting key information down, but not forgetting to look up, make sure that I'm making eye contact, and stop typing when it seems like we've hit a sensitive topic. Like I said before, you can even pull your chair a little bit closer or step to a far side of the exam table. We call this active listening. So you're showing the patient and the family that although I need have things I need to do, you have my full attention at the moment. Taking a casual, non-threatening stance can also be really helpful. So trying to uncross your arms if they're folded over or you know, put down, if you have a phone or something that's in your hand, try and put it down. This communicates that this is a space and that families can talk. 
about something sensitive. And even though you know it might make the visit longer, showing this to a family will help them feel like I'm in a place where I can trust that I can share something pretty sensitive. Another thing is to not be afraid of silence. Silence can mean a lot of things, but when we face silence, sometimes we like steamroll right through it and continue talking about other things because A, it's uncomfortable to be silent, and B, we have so many other things we need to cover that sometimes you can take silence as a cue to move on, that there's nothing else to be said. But if we address the silence by just remaining in it, sometimes talking less and listening more is paramount. I know I said before also to make eye contact. I can't stress this enough. Looking up and making eye contact with a family, you're going to be able to see what they're doing and their nonverbals will tell you so much. And lastly, just make sure to check your face. Try not to be shocked or overly emotional, but also not to feel like uh, maybe an inquisitive robot where you can't show any emotion either. It's a fine, delicate balance of remembering that at the end of this, there are just a bunch of humans in a room together that are trying to help someone feel better. Really great tips. Thank you. And it's so important, as you mentioned, that we're aware of our own body language and some of the things that we're doing unconsciously, as you mentioned, what you might be holding, how you might be folding your arms or tapping your foot or things that you do sometimes when you're sitting at the computer that really can be getting in the way of your communication. So thanks for pointing those out. Another thing that many practices use is a pre-visit questionnaire or screener that's either on paper or electronic. So how should we use these tools as a launching point for our conversation in a way that still feels organic or natural? First and foremost, thank them for filling it out. Acknowledging that they took the time to do it can really go a long way. And that's both for a child, a teen, and the parents. Second, don't be thrown off if they don't remember doing it or if they don't seem to be connecting the answers to a specific problem or that their answers were concerning at all. Third, be ready to give them a brief summary of the items, something like, thank you so much for filling out that questionnaire. I know that they're sensitive and they take up some time, but they really help me understand how you might be feeling or what's going on at home or at school. As a reminder, the questions that you were asked were around topics of feeling sad, such as mood changes, concentration issues, sleep problems, so on and so forth. And then, before giving your diagnostic recap, ask them how it felt to answer questions like that. So what was it like to answer those questions? Did it mean anything specific to you? And then come in with your clinical formulation. So from the way that you answered these questions, it seems like you might be struggling with feeling sad in a way that could be consistent with something called depression. Have you ever heard of that before? This approach makes the conversation over a diagnosis, much more casual and non-threatening. And that can be followed up with some good problem solving or a referral to a behavioral health provider. And I think you might've taught me something because I heard some illicit provide illicit in there. I think so too. Great job. <laughs> well, that is perfect. Now I feel so much better equipped about handling communication challenges with our behavioral health patients. We are so lucky to have psychologists like you, and especially you, at CHOP helping in primary care. But these are great tools to help providers in any setting that they're working in. So thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about these issues. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 